Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a Triad production. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. My guest today is Ariel Spring. Ariel Spring is a living example of a phoenix rising. She began her life in an idyllic setting, surrounded by loving parents and a sibling. She started to soar as a classic pianist and was mentored by a renowned piano teacher. Ariel's life took a sudden turn in her sophomore year of high school when she experienced the first of a succession of traumas, including sexual assault, the loss of her piano teacher, and becoming homeless. Ariel began her ascent through hard work and dedication to discover her true self. She took a job as a domestic violence crisis group facilitator, which inspired her to create her own domestic violence support group. Ariel went on to become a certified professional life and health coach. Ariel has discovered that her passion for music and design have spilled over into the writing of books, publications, and blogs. Ariel is the author of the memoir entitled When Birds Sing, My Journey from Trauma to Triumph which details her journey through abuse to the moment when a conscious awakening prompted her to discover a power greater than herself. Ariel, I'm so happy to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thank you, Dr. Taylor. Wonderful to to be with you. Thank you. Well, Ariel, I gave a brief overview of your story in the introduction here, but for our listeners to fully grasp your transcendent journey, would you be willing to walk us through your story that is shared in your book? Yes, absolutely. As you mentioned, my journey did start in an idyllic small town with only two traffic lights. And from the outside, everything looked marvelous. I looked like a happy little girl, but inside a storm was brewing. My mother didn't really have a lot of time for me and wanted to be the center of attention herself. So That left me not really getting mirrored properly to begin to develop my own identity. But things went along well because I had a stable upbringing, two parents, you know, a wonderful home. And I was doing well in school and studying classical piano to become a concert pianist. So when I wasn't at school, I was practicing two hours a day piano. And I took a co-op job in high school with a skincare professional who had a studio in her home. And I was just a very naive 16-year-old at this time. And she had to go into the hospital for surgery. And she left me in charge of the studio. And her husband sexually assaulted me in the home. And I handled the event amazingly maturely. And the problem started when I went home and told my parents, and they insisted I go back into the work environment the next day. Mm. In writing my memoir, I realized that it was at that moment that I began to doubt my ability to make good decisions. And ironically, shortly thereafter, I accepted a date from a new guy in town, and that ended in tragedy when he picked up two other guys from our class and drove out on a dirt road 
and they all sexually assaulted me. I carried the shame of that dramatic event in silence. I never told a soul. My relationship was eroding with my parents, so I wasn't able to tell them about it. And I began to feel completely alone and wondering how the heck I was going to launch myself into the world. Several years later, after many successes and failures, both professionally and personally, I met someone that I was abused by for four long years. That experience changed me forever on a cellular level. I was a fortunate person that I had enough strength and ability to leave. But that was just the beginning of my healing journey. And one of the things I knew I needed to do innately for my healing was to give back. And that's when I joined an awareness women's group where I became a sport group crisis facilitator. And I, I did that for you know, several years until I developed my own group. You know, there are so many things that you're sharing here. And let me just start out by saying how much I appreciate right out of the gate, your willingness to be candid and transparent and vulnerable with us. I think that when we go through traumas, there is inherent shame and shame being different from guilt. Guilt is something that I do. Shame is something, shame is really who I am. And more times than not, shame doesn't it gets kept in silence. It's a secret and we keep it to ourselves and we're alone in the world with something that's pretty heavy to carry. It's a big weight, isn't it? Absolutely. And I really resonate with what you just said, Dr. Taylor, about how the shame became my new identity. That's the sad part of it. And you were, I, I want to be very respectful of your parents doing the best job that they could, but oftentimes yeah. when we don't have a necessary, it's actually, it's an essential childhood need to have mirroring from our parents. They kind of like a computer program, they download into us and they share with us an understanding of who we are. And if for whatever reason they can't do that mirroring, we don't have a fully developed, fully evolved sense of who we are. And so we're seeking the world, we're seeking out in the world, this opportunity to be mirrored. And there's an inherent vulnerability, isn't there? When we don't have that full identity developed yet, it includes boundaries and a sense of self and value and worth. If we don't have that, we are vulnerable and we are seeking it in ways that oftentimes makes us prone to be at risk for being hurt. Yes. And I was that child who was yeah. prone to being hurt because I was a sensitive child. And instead of fostering that, you know, like you said, my parents did the best they could, bless their hearts. I was told I was too sensitive. I was mm -hmm. too honest. And these sorts of things that I wanted too much holding after my nap. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. that developed my character. Yeah, what you just said right there was the what is usually how shame gets transmitted. It's you are, you are, you are. You're too clingy, you're too needy, you're too whatever. And that begins to, not surprisingly, create a sense of what our self-meaning really is, that identity that you mentioned a moment ago. 
I want to get down in, into some of the things here that are part of recovery, but I'm curious as we start out, why the title of your book, When Birds Sing? It's a lovely title, but why did you choose that one? Well, it's very sentimental. One year when my parents were out visiting us, we used to live in the Pacific Northwest. We, we had just finished dinner, and my father said to me, every spring when the birds would sing, I would pray that you were okay. Mm. And I, I burst from the table, you know, burst out crying privately. And that is why my book is titled When Birds I, I really like that. Yeah, when they sing, it's beautiful. You know, through your journey, Ariel, what did you learn about abuse, including the aspects maybe that might involve the dynamic of power, control, a violent cycle, what happens to one's psyche when they're on the receiving end of this? What'd you learn about abuse? What I learned, doctor, is that for me, it completely eroded my self-esteem, my self-confidence, and my identity. Then I took on the identity of victim. Yeah. And so that was extremely difficult. And I think one of the hallmarks of post-traumatic stress disorder is kind of acts like addiction in a way in that it will tell you you're fine. You -hmm. don't need help. Mm -hmm. At least this is how it worked for me as I was experiencing the symptoms, even though at that time I didn't know I was experiencing PTSD symptoms and complex post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms, which are another whole host of symptoms, which I'd like to just insert here that the professionals haven't even, according to my research, decided if CPTSD is another form of PTSD or its own disorder. Say more about that for us, if you would, CPTSD. Yes, complex post-traumatic stress disorder occurs Mm -hmm. when you have several traumas. And any person who is enduring abuse is most likely going to endure several traumas. So they will be dealing with a whole host of other symptoms, such as difficulty in controlling their emotions, feeling angry or distrustful Mm -hmm. with people, constant feelings of emptiness or hopelessness, feeling as if you're permanently damaged or unworthy, feeling that you're completely different from everyone else in the world, feeling like nobody understands what happened to you, and then avoiding friendships and relationships. Or if you do get into relationships, finding them extremely difficult. Even dissociative symptoms are related to CPTSD and physical symptoms like headache, dizziness, digestive problems, and also suicidal feelings. Yeah, those all make up the symptom picture, don't they, of someone going through a trauma. And you, I really appreciate you identifying the fact that there are some traumas that we go through that make us particularly at risk for something turning into a complex PTSD. In other words, several traumas back to back to back. And people oftentimes say, well, why don't you make better choices? Why don't you get into you know a healthy relationship? But when you so 
appropriately, Ariel, say, when you go through a trauma early in life, well, you go through a trauma, period, but you go through traumas like what you're describing, there is an erosion in one's sense of self. They don't have a healthy sense of self. You don't have that mirroring in your family. You don't have that coming into the situation. You are at risk for your identity not being fully developed, the erosion of the self that takes place through the trauma itself. And that makes one vulnerable. And, and, and in that process, that shame comes into play. It must be about me. It must be who I am. And so what fails to happen? We don't develop good, healthy boundaries. Good, healthy boundaries and self-respect come out of being able to recognize that I do have value and I do have worth. But these events and the absence of maybe having some of that in our upbringing in terms of where that was mirrored to us, that makes one so vulnerable, doesn't it, to repeated offenses? This is what I talk about in my book about my over 20-year downward spiral into the abyss mm -hmm. of darkness and despair. Exactly what you're describing, that it's just a snowball going down the hill, if you will, getting bigger and bigger. And you don't know what you don't know about what you're in. You're trying to get your feet underneath you exactly. and trying to get some grounding in this. But within the context of the complexity of the trauma itself and the shame that occurs, the erosion of the identity, all of these things, you can't get your legs underneath you. It's just, it is a snowball, isn't it? And it gets worse and it gets worse or more vulnerable and more vulnerable. Absolutely. And my book depicts that very painfully and distinctly. Yeah, At least that's what many have told me. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Nearly 9 in 10 registered voters believe the nation faces a mental health crisis, according to a new USA Today Suffolk University poll. Americans are more concerned than ever about their mental health. Mental health first aid provides the resources and training to identify, understand, and respond to signs of mental health and substance use challenges. It provides the confidence and skills needed to offer life-saving assistance, and it provides peace of mind. Our experts provide mental health first aid training for adults, teens, caregivers, veterans, law enforcement, EMS, and school faculty. Mental health concerns are on the rise, but evidence-based training through mental health first aid can make a difference. Visit mentalhealthfirstaid.org to find a course near you or email hello at mentalhealthfirstaid.org to schedule a training. Courses are available for individuals, groups, organizations, and companies of all sizes. Visit mentalhealthfirstaid.org and make a difference in your community. You, you talked about some of these symptoms just a moment ago, which I appreciate our listeners being able to learn from. What led you finally, Ariel, to seek some help? Well, I humbled myself to confide in a co-worker. And he began picking me up to go to work. Actually, he came to my apartment one day when the abuser had bitten holes in the sides of my nose. And he demanded, my ex-husband said, well, she doesn't feel well. She can't come to the door. And he said, I'm not leaving here till you bring her to the door. Mm -hmm. And so it was that belief in me that mm -hmm. really, you know, prompted me to begin writing my safe exit plan. And then I was able to execute that plan and leave. No family or friends, 
that one person mm-hmm. was had responsible to, to begin my process of, of the opening of self-love for myself that I had lost. Let's not underestimate the importance of what one person can do to say, hey, there's something here that I want to help you with or help you through, or just come alongside you as we direct you maybe on a journey that can be helpful with people that can help. What do you think? You said you started with the word humble. I had to humble myself. What was the hardest part, looking back, of reaching out for help at the very beginning? Again, the disorder of PTSD for me said to me, you're fine. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see my life in the reality that it was in. Yeah. Like we talked about before, I was a snowball going down the mountain and I couldn't stop it. I couldn't see it. And so in my spiritual journey, I've kind of believed that it's a humbling that I had to get out of my ego. I'm fine and get into my heart. And that's when I had my conscious awakening is when I fell to my knees and sobbed to the Lord, please help me. Mm. When I realized, when I was able to take a real look at my life and say, I see my life, I see where it is, and I don't want it to go one inch further down Mm. than it is. And that was the beginning when I asked, asked the Lord for help. Then I sought out help. And then once I sought out outside help, then I was able to go, what do I want my recovery to look like? What kinds of things do I want in my recovery? Can you speak to that a little bit? Because I'm I'm curious, because you're pausing here before even it gets going, the recovery journey itself. And you're saying, what do I want this to look like? What do I need this to look like? What did you decide that the first steps needed to be? Well, I think, you know, a lot of times women in my situation go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, here's a list of drugs we'd like you to get on. And so for me, I had an obligation to myself, whether it be environmentally, morally, that I didn't want to go that route. However, I was having the physical symptoms I talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. the, you know, many digestive disorders. And I went to my doctor and she said, let's try a low dose of an antidepressant. And I said, but here's where I need it titrated. So I worked with my doctor and I said, and what can I get off when I want? And I worked with her and together I did change my brain chemistry. Mm. And after I felt I was at a point where I changed my brain chemistry, I was weaned off the drug. Then I sought out natural medicine. Really good. And organic foods and many natural supplements. And right now I can sit here and tell you I am on no pharmaceuticals. Good for you. What I really appreciate you bringing to our attention that these symptoms are not always a psychological in nature. We don't oftentimes maybe recognize some of the things of PTSD, but maybe our bodies are evidencing something, digestive problems, headaches, you know, chronic pain sometimes comes into play. And those are all just one more type of symptom that's a part of 
the complex PTSD, isn't it? So your attention to this and helping us understand that that's something to address too. We can go to our therapist, which is a great place to start. We can go to a medical doctor, which is a nice adjunct to the whole treatment process in and of itself. So nicely done on that. Thank you. Because we are a whole pie. That's right. You know, we're holistic. And this may sound cliche, but we are mind, body, spirit. Yes, we are. So all of it is connected. Yeah. I learned through my recovery process that it was important to have all the areas of the pie filled. The talk therapy, the body work, the body movement, the mm-hmm. natural supplementation, because my adrenals became very, very weak. Yes. And they had to be supplemented to build my strength back. And so I'm just a firm believer in natural medicine and working yeah. with naturopathic doctors. And they've done wonders to help me. Yeah, I want to highlight these things you're saying. These are some of the strategies and techniques that we can do in our recovery work. It's, you know, Vander Kolk holds, has the book, uh, The Body Keeps Score. Yeah. And this idea of, you know, body movement, body work, EMDR, reprocessing some of these things, schematotherapy, as you describe, reprocessing some of this, and ultimately looking to find and reclaiming our true self. Interesting in this process, there's a place for forgiveness. And forgiveness is an important part of growth, though at face value, the concept of forgiveness in a situation like this seems almost kind of paradoxical, even absurd, given what happened. But tell us, what have you come to learn about the importance of forgiveness and self-healing and growth? Well, at first, I, I just believed that forgiveness was taking back my power. And that was, that was a great step. Recently, I've learned that the abuser, since we're talking about domestic abuse, racks up a debt on my account. And he can never repay that debt. And what I've done through schema therapy is go in and visit all my different child parts and say, what part of the debt are you carrying? And have an interaction with them and then ask them, are you ready now to let go of your part of the debt? Mm -hmm. And that's how we can let go of the debt. I think throughout my life, I thought I needed to repay their debt. You know, and I was kind of beating myself up that I thought it was a debt I had made on myself through the shame. But realizing that they racked the debt up and they weren't going to repay, it was up to me to let go of the debt. That really, I've been doing that work in the last six months. I really like that. There's a book called The Shack that Mm. talks about this process of forgiveness and you know, it's hard to think about forgiveness because if I forgive them, aren't I just condoning, you know, what they did or aren't I somehow just kind of letting them off the hook and at face value again, that's what forgiveness sounds like. Like I'm letting you go and get away with something that you did to me. That's not fair. I need you to pay some debt. I need to be some, some compensation for what you did. And yet as we hold on to that, we really find ourselves 
tethered to something emotionally and psychologically that really kind of comes back. You know, the old saying that says, you know, you take a poison pill and you wait for somebody else to die. Well, in some ways, the lack of forgiveness unknowingly begins to erode away at us. And what you're encouraging here in forgiveness, uh, Ariel, is you get to untether yourself from that emotional and psychological connection, you know, with the perpetrator and allowing you to lessen the grip of that hurt and the offense and help free you from the control that person has had in their debt and giving it back to them where it belongs. You never had any role in that. I really like the way you're framing this. And I wanted to add that I say to these different parts of myself, it's not your fault. Mm -hmm. This was not fair. You didn't deserve it. That's right. You know, that's a message sometimes that gets missed very early on. People working with folks that have gone through traumas start to process the traumas right away. But something that's very important, I believe, at the front end is to say to the person, let them know, this is not your fault. The uh, movie Goodwill Hunting with Robin Williams and Matt Damon has a great scene where he, he's saying, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And Matt Damon has the hardest time so letting go of that. And you know why? It's because of what you said earlier on, Ariel. It's because of that identity around shame that has the event wrapped up and around and into who you are. But this I, this idea of this is not who you are and it's not your fault is sometimes a hard thing to let go of because like you said, for the longest time, that is my identity. It eroded away my true sense of self and almost inserted or emblazoned upon me almost indelibly this sense of, no, 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 this is who I am. This is who I am. Don't take that away from me. I'm worthless. <laughs> I am worthless. I have no value. It's my fault. That's right. That's right. Hey, you know, I want to, you know, as we're talking about forgiveness, I want to go back and pick up something you said earlier. You identified having had a conscious awakening, which prompted you to discover a greater power than yourself. I I would like to know just a little bit more about this awakening and the power you discovered and how it's become part of your life, it sounds like, and also part of an ongoing recovery journey. It's very difficult to articulate, actually. It was almost like a divine intervention. There I was in my tiny studio, barely any furniture. And as I said earlier, Dr. Taylor, I just dropped to my knees. And I began to sob and beg for help. And I remembered my mother's mother, my granny, as we called her, instilling the Lord's Prayer in me when I was just a little girl. And I remembered that sense of my Savior. And it just started to grow from that point where I knew that I was perfectly and wonderfully made, Psalm 139. Yes. Not to get religious, but it's been part of my, it fits for me. Yeah, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Yes. And he knows everything about us. Absolutely. And I began reading that psalm over and over and over until I started to believe it. I think in every recovery process, we get to access. AA does this. NA does this. Most 12-step recovery process do this as a first step. They say, this is larger than I am. What I'm dealing with right now is bigger than me. And I need something larger than me, bigger than me to help me kind of anchor myself in this recovery and It's unique to every person, 
for you, you're talking about a relationship with the Lord that help you kind of anchor back to that earliest Lord's prayer and this idea that I am fearfully and wonderfully made and I am known in his image to kind of be a cornerstone for you, it sounds like, in your recovery process, which is essential. And don't underestimate the importance of that piece. You know, as you're talking about this recovery, what were some of the milestones in your journey that signaled to you that you were beginning to heal and grow? How did you see that process unfold? Well, I guess the biggest one I'd like to touch on is my relationship with my mother and my father. I, again, innately knew that I didn't want that relationship to be left where it was, estranged. And so we moved where they lived, and we spent the last two years taking care of them. And I want to impress upon our listeners and viewers today the importance of when you work on yourself, you change a relationship. Yes, you do. My mother didn't do any work on herself, but in those two years, she made changes. I called them mommy moments. (laughs) And some of the most beautiful, loving things she would say, and she was even proud of my book, which I instructed her not to read, but she was proud of me. And she would articulate that to me because of the work I did on myself. Mm. So I just want women and people to know that you never know what can happen When you do the work. What I love about that message, Ariel, is that we oftentimes are waiting for others to change, to help meet our need. But if we grow first, the whole dynamic changes and how we come into life and relationship with other people is different simply because of the growth that we make. And they can't help more times than not to somehow reciprocate and actually grow secondarily from the growth that we've done. And oftentimes it's an interesting thing. When we grow in our own work, we're less needy, we're less requiring of them to do it just right to meet our need. And yet something happens in that, doesn't it? Just naturally, organically. It is a a very powerful organic process that you seem to understand completely. That's what happened here to the point where in her last month of life, she agreed to do a session with my therapist. And she ended up crying and couldn't stop. Uh, And I took those tears as an I'm sorry. Yeah. Even though she couldn't say the words. Isn't that wonderful? You talked about how she was able to see you and acknowledge you, your book included. The very first thing you said in our talk today was my, my mom was not able to mirror me. And I couldn't get from her a sense of, you know, that mirroring and who I was. And yet here she is at the end of her life from the growth that you've made, being able to see you and acknowledge you and maybe even see some of her own pain and regrets. What a lovely ending you allowed her to have there. I know we're kind of coming to the end of our time today. And I want to see if you might be able to kind of give our listeners a word about the power of transformation for those that might be battling PTSD or maybe kind of curious about taking a look at themselves, given some of the things in their lives that they've gone through, maybe adverse experiences. Leave our listeners with a word, would you? The word is miracles. When you humble yourself to admit to yourself and to your God 
that you need help and that you're willing to help yourself, miracles will occur in your life. Mm -hmm. I promise you. That's a wonderful message of hope right there. Ariel, I would love for our listeners to follow up with you after our show today. Give us a sense of how they can do so. And also with regard to your book, When Birds Sing. Yes, I'm on Instagram, Ariel Spring Author. I'm on Facebook, When Birds Sing and Ariel Spring. And my website where you can catch up on everything I'm doing from live TV to radio shows to periodical articles to my blog is arielspring.net. Very good, arielspring.net. We're going to put that on our site as well. By the way, before I close, are you still playing your piano? I didn't bring the piano in the movie. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, it didn't make it across country. But, you know, it's coming again. You should put that on your I'm site. I'm on YouTube. <laughs> oh, oh, that's good. Good. You've got a very nice web page. And I was thinking maybe you want to put, your, put yourself playing the piano. I'll have to take and a look at you I, on YouTube. I wanted to just say my book, When Birds Sing, My Journey from Trauma to Triumph, is available on Amazon. Barnes and Noble, at Walmart, even online. Great. Well, Ariel, I so appreciate your vulnerability, as I mentioned earlier today, and your transparency in today's show. And I know that while bad things happen in our lives, you're an example that we can, with hard work and dedication, ascend from our traumas, truly, to discover our true selves through a self-empowered transformation. And your message is such a hopeful one. And I really appreciate being on the show today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Taylor. It's been an honor. It's been great to be with you. It's my honor as well. Thank you. I want to thank you, our listeners, as well, for dropping by and joining Ariel and me today. It's always great to have you with us. Regarding our episode today, I want to remind you that it and its resources and all of our other episodes can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash bht. So check out our webpage, tryathq.com slash BHT and explore our archive of podcasts and other resource materials. And thanks again for being with us on this show. I look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavioral Health Today. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. 